This is the Man of God Network, an outreach ministry of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. This is the voice of the narrated Puritan. For more narrations of Puritans, go to puritanaudiobooks.com. The following chapter is taken from a book called Thoughts on Religious Experience by Archibald Alexander, the first professor of Princeton Theological Seminary in the year 1812. This book was written in 1844. There is more on this subject of sympathy in Christian experience and especially in revival at PuritanAudiobooks.com. Under R.L. Dabney, the subject is called Spurious Religious Excitements and a separate one within that called The Effect of Sympathy. This chapter is called The Effect of Sympathy Illustrated. The causes already considered which modify religious experience relate to Christians as individuals, but man is constitutionally a social being, and religion is a social thing, so that we cannot have a complete view of the subject without considering them as they stand connected with others, and especially as they are influenced by one another. There is a mysterious bond called sympathy by which not only human beings but some species of animals are connected. It is much easier on this subject to state the facts rather than to be able to account for them. A man cannot go into any company without being sensible of some change in his feelings. Whatever passion agitates those around him, he involuntarily participates in the emotion, and a mere external expression of any feeling often produces the same expression in himself. Whether it be yawning, if you see somebody yawn, it may cause you to yawn. If you see people smiling, it will cause you to smile. Crying or coughing, laughing, and this must be effected by an assimilation of the mind of the beholder to the state of mind which produced the external act. The wilder and stronger the passions which agitate others, the more are we affected by them. I would just say as a footnote, one example of this in our day is a term that we call bottlenecking. If you look over into the crossover of a highway and you see that there is a crash down there and that a car has sustained a good deal of damage, we say that you bottleneck by looking over to be able to see what has happened and that's the effect of sympathy. Archibald Alexander, to return, this operation of mutual sympathetic excitement when many persons are brought together under some agitating influence, produces a stream of emotion which cannot easily be resisted, and far above what any one of the crowd would have felt if the same cause had operated on him alone. Hence the ungovernable fury of mobs carrying desolation and often murder in their train, and yet the ringleaders, had they been alone, would have experienced no such violence of passion and hence the danger in large cities of permitting multitudes of undisciplined people to assemble promiscuously. A mob is an artificial body pervaded by one spirit, by the power of sympathy, for which the French have an appropriate phrase, esprit de corps. If there be anything in animal magnetism which has of late made so much noise besides sheer imposture, it must be grafted on this principle. For the extent to which human beings may influence each other by contact or proximity in certain excitable states of the nervous system has never been accurately ascertained. 
in the Kentucky Revival and those remarkable bodily affections called the jerks, which appeared in religious meetings some years ago, the nervous irregularity was commonly produced by the sight of other persons thus affected. And if in some instances without the sight, yet by having the imagination strongly impressed by hearing of such things, it is a fact as undoubted as it is remarkable that as this bodily affection assumed a great variety of appearances in different places, nothing was more common than for a new species of the exercise, as it was called, to be imported from another part of the country by one or a few individuals. This contagion of nervous excitement is not unparalleled, for where whole schools of young ladies have been seized with spasmodic or epileptic fits in consequence of a single scholar being taken with the disease, there are many authentic facts ascertained in relation to this matter, which I hope some person will collect and give to the public through the press. It will not be thought strange, then, that sympathy should have a powerful influence in increasing and modifying the feelings which are experienced in Christian meetings, public worship, nor is it desirable that it should be otherwise. This principle no doubt is liable to abuse, and when unduly excited may be attended with disagreeable and injurious effects, but without it how dull and uninterested would social worship be. When a whole assembly and listening to the same evangelical discourse, or praising God in the same divine song, or sitting together around the same sacramental table are deeply affected. They form, as it were, one body, and the whole mass is melted down and amalgamated into one grand emotion. They seem to have but one heart and one soul, and as harmoniously as their voices mingle in the sacred song of praise to the Redeemer, do their feelings amalgamate in one ascending volume toward heaven. The preacher who is privileged to address such an assembly seems to have before him one great body, having many eyes, but one soul. Hence we see the reason why a company thinly scattered over a large house always appears cold and uncomfortable, while the same persons brought near together in a small house have an entirely different appearance. And also we see why social meetings and private houses are felt by sincere Christians to be more profitable often than the more solemn assemblies of the church. And upon the same principle, all worshipers feel more animated when surrounded by a multitude. But it is in times of revival or general awakening that the power of this principle manifests itself most evidently, and it is no evidence of a spurious work that the sympathies of the people are much awakened, or that many are led to seriousness by seeing others affected. God often blesses this instinctive feeling in this very way. But is it not to be expected that at such a time many will be affected by mere sympathy? And will not such as are thus affected be in great danger of being deceived by taking these tender emotions of sympathy to be the exercise of true repentance, especially as they fall in with those convictions of conscience which all who hear the gospel experience? Is it then judicious by impassioned discourses addressed to the sympathies of our nature to raise this class of feelings to a flame? or to devise measures by which the passions of the young and ignorant may be excited to excess, that measures may be put into operation which have a mighty influence on a whole assembly is readily admitted. But are excitements thus produced really useful? 
They may bring young people who are diffident to a decision and, as it were, constrains them to range themselves on the Lord's side. But the question which sticks with me is, does this really benefit the persons? In my judgment, not at all, but the contrary. If they have the seed of grace, though it may come forth slowly, yet this principle will find its way to the light and air, and the very slowness of its coming forward may give it opportunity to strike its roots deep in the earth. If I were to place myself on what is called an anxious seat, or should kneel down before a whole congregation to be prayed for, I know that I should be strangely agitated, but I do not believe that it would be of any permanent utility. But if it should produce some good effect, am I at liberty to resort to anything in the worship of God, which I think will be useful? If such things are lawful and useful, why not add other circumstances to increase the effect? Why not require the penitent to appear in a white sheet, or to be clothed in sackcloth with ashes on his head? And these, remember, are scriptural signs of humiliation. And on these principles, who can reasonably object to holy water, to incense, and the use of pictures or images in the worship of God? All these things come into the church upon the same principle of devising new measures to do good. And if the anxious seat is so powerful a means of grace, it may soon come to be reckoned among the sacraments of the church. The language of experience is that it is unsafe and unwise to bring persons who are under religious impressions too much into public view. The seed of the word, like the natural seed, does not vegetate well in the sun. Be not too impatient to force into maturity the plant of grace. Water it, cultivate it, but handle it not with a rough hand. The opinion entertained by some good people that all religion obtained in a revival is suspicious has no just foundation. At such times, when the Spirit of God is really poured out, the views and exercises of converts are commonly more clear and satisfactory than at other times, and the process of conversion more speedy. But doubtless there may be expected a considerable crop of spurious conversions, and these may make the greatest show, for the seed on the stony ground seems to have vegetated the quickest of any. And this is the reason that after all revivals there is a sad declension in the favorable appearances, because that which has no root must soon wither. And looking back after a revival season, I have thought how would manners have been if none had come forward, but such as persevere and bring forth fruit. Perhaps things would have gone on so quietly that the good work would not have been called a revival. But ministers cannot prevent the impressions which arise merely from sympathy, neither should they attempt it. But when they are about to gather the wheat into the garner, they should faithfully winnow the heap nor can they discern the spirits of men. The church is no place of safety for the unconverted. Hundreds and thousands are shielded from salutary convictions by their profession and situation in the church. Let ministers be wise as serpents as well as harmless as doves. Be not many masters, knowing that you shall receive the greater condemnation. They watch for souls as they that must give an account, an awful account. From what has been said about the power of sympathy, some may be ready to conclude that all experimental religion and all revivals may be accounted for on this principle, without the necessity of supposing any supernatural agency to exist. 
and if no effects were produced but those excitements which often mingle with religious exercises, this would not be an irrational conclusion. But under the preaching of the gospel, we find a permanent change of moral character taking place. So great a change that even in the view of the world who observe it, the subject appears to be a new man. An entire revolution has taken place in his principles of action, as well as in his sentiments respecting divine things. Now those who would ascribe all experimental religion to mere natural feelings artificially excited must believe that there is no such transformations of character as have been mentioned, and that all who profess such a change are false pretenders. But this ground is manifestly untenable, for no facts are more certain than such reformations, and if there be men of truth and sincerity in the world, they are to be found among those who have undergone this moral transformation. Surely there are no phenomena now taking place in our world half so important and worthy of consideration as a repentance of an habitual sinner, so that he utterly forsakes his wicked courses and takes delight in the worship of God and obedience to his will. Let it be remembered that these are effects observed only where the gospel is preached. And in some instances, numerous examples of such conversion from sin to holiness occur about the same time and in the same place. No series of miracles could give stronger evidence of the divine origin and power of the gospel than the actual and permanent reformation of wicked men. And a skeptic may be challenged to account for such effects on any natural principles. But it still may be asked how the person who is a subject of these new views and exercises can know that they are the effects of a supernatural agency. It is readily admitted that we cannot be conscious of the agency of another spirit on ours because our consciousness extends only to our own thoughts, and often when new feelings arise in our minds, we are unable to trace them to their proper cause. In this case, if we had no revelation from God, we might not be able with certainty to account for such effects. But in the word of God, we are distinctly and repeatedly informed that God by his spirit will continue to operate on the minds of men to turn them from iniquity and to cause them to engage with delight in his service. And when we find these very effects taking place in connection with the means appointed to produce them, we can have no doubt about their divine origin. And our faith is confirmed in this doctrine of divine agency by observing the wonderful change produced by the preaching of the gospel upon the most depraved and degraded of the heathen. The transformation of character in thousands of instances now existing is enough to produce conviction in any mind, not rendered obdurate by the prejudices of infidelity. It may be objected that in many examples that change professed is not permanent, but temporary, and they who appear saints today may be found wallowing in the mire of iniquity tomorrow. These are facts which we cannot gainsay, but we do deny that they go to invalidate the argument from the examples of a permanent and thorough change which really do take place. If there were only one real sound conversion and reformation and a hundred of those who may be religiously impressed, still the conclusion in favor of a divine influence would be valid. In the spring, we behold the trees clothed and adorned with millions of blossoms, which never produce mature fruit. But when in autumn we find here and there apples, large, sweet, and mellow, do we hesitate to believe that this is a good tree which produces good fruit? 
For reasons already given, it ought not to be expected that all serious impressions should eventuate in a sound conversion. External appearances may be the same to our view, where the causes are entirely diverse. This is especially to be expected when a great many are affected at once and meet in the same assembly. And if these transient appearances did not take place under the preaching of the gospel, our Savior's doctrine of the various effects of the word would not be verified. Ministers of the gospel cannot be blamed for these temporary impressions unless they use unauthorized means to work upon the sympathies of their hearers. That, through ignorance, vanity, and enthusiastic ardor, many preachers in our day have attempted to produce such excitements, cannot be denied, and by the true friends of vital piety is greatly lamented. Perhaps nothing has so much prejudiced the minds of sensible men against experimental religion is the extravagance and violence of those factitious excitements which have been promoted in various places by measures artfully contrived to work upon the passions and imagination of weak and ignorant people. And as a preacher must have his reward of glory for his efforts, all this must be so brought out that their number may be counted and published to the world. Alas, alas, poor human nature! I believe that all respectable denominations among us are becoming more and more sensible that something more is requisite in the ministry than fiery zeal. Some who, within our remembrance, disparaged a learned ministry are now using noble exertions to erect seminaries and encourage their young preachers to seek to be learned. This is a manner of rejoicing and augurs well for the American church hereafter. I should be unwilling to bring before the public all the scenes that I have witnessed under the name of religious worship. But as the subject of sympathy is still under consideration, I will relieve the reader by a short narrative. Being in a part of the country where I was known by face to scarcely anyone, and hearing that there was a great meeting in the neighborhood and a good working progress, I determined to attend. The sermon had commenced before I arrived, and the house was so crowded that I could not approach near to the pulpit, but sat down in a kind of shed connected with the main building where I could see and hear the preacher. His sermon was really striking and impressive, and in language and method far above the common run of extempore discourses. The people were generally attentive, and so far as I could observe, Many were tenderly affected, except that in the extreme part of the house where I sat, some old tobacco planters kept up a continual conversation in a low tone about tobacco plants, seasons, and so on. When the preacher came to the application of his discourse, he became exceedingly vehement and boisterous, and I could hear some sounds in the center of the house which indicated strong emotion. At length a female voice was heard in a piercing cry which thrilled through me and affected the whole audience. It was succeeded by a low murmuring sound from the middle of the house. But in a few seconds one and another arose in different parts of the house under extreme invisible agitation, casting off their bonnets and their caps, and raising their folded hands, they shouted to the utmost extent of their voices, and in a few seconds more the whole audience was agitated as a forest when shaken by a mighty wind. The sympathetic wave commencing in the center extended to the extremities, and at length it reached our corner, 
and I felt the conscious effort of resistance as necessary as if I had been exposed to the violence of a storm. I saw few persons through the whole house who escaped the prevailing influence. Even careless boys seemed to be arrested and to join in a general outcry. But what astonished me most of all was that the old tobacco planters whom I have mentioned, and whom I am persuaded had not heard one word of the sermon, were violently agitated. Every muscle of their brawny faces appeared to be in tremulous motion, and the big tears chased one another down their wrinkled cheeks. Here I saw the power of sympathy. The feeling was real and propagated from person to person by the mere sounds which were uttered, for many of the audience had not paid any attention to what was said, but nearly all partook of the agitation. The feelings expressed were different as when the foundation of the second temple was laid. For while some uttered the cry of poignant anguish, others shouted in the accents of joy and triumph. The speaker's voice was soon silenced, and he sat down and gazed on the scene with a complacent smile. When this tumult had lasted a few minutes, another preacher, as I suppose he was, who sat on the pulpit steps with his handkerchief spread over his head, began to sing a soothing and yet lively tune and was quickly joined by some strong female voices near him. And in less than two minutes the storm was hushed and there was a great calm. It was like pouring oil on the troubled waters. I experienced the most sensible relief to my own feeling from the appropriate music, for I could not hear the words sung. But I could not have supposed that anything could so quickly allay such a storm, and all seemed to enjoy the tranquility which succeeded. The disheveled hair was put in order, and the bonnets and so on gathered up, and the irregularities of the dress adjusted, and no one seemed conscious of any impropriety. Indeed, there is a peculiar luxury in such excitements, especially when tears are shed copiously, which was the case here. But I attended another meeting in another place where there had been a remarkable excitement, but the tide was very far on the ebb, and although we had vociferation and outcrying of a stunning kind, I did not hear one sound indicative of real feeling, and I do not think that one tear was shed during the meeting." End quote. Now to complete this narrative, I have opened up the discussion of Robert Louis Dabney, Volume 3, on spurious religious excitements, to further define the term sympathy. Quote, The most deceptive natural feeling of the carnal man is instinctive sympathy. It will be necessary to state the nature and conditions of this feeling first, it belongs to the passive sensibilities, not to the spontaneous appetencies. It is purely instinctive, appearing as powerfully in animals as in men. Witness the excitement of a flock of birds over the cries of a single comrade and the stampede of a herd of oxen. Next, it is even in man an unintelligent feeling in this sense, that if the emotion of another be merely seen and heard, Sympathy is propagated, although the sympathizer understands nothing of the cause of the feeling he witnesses. We come upon a child who is an utter stranger weeping. We share the sympathetic saddening before he has had time to tell us what causes his tears. 
We enter a room where our friends are drowned in laughter. Before we have asked the questions, friends, what is so funny, we find ourselves smiling. We see two strangers afar off exchanging blows. We feel the excitement stimulating us to run there while ignorant of what they are fighting about. Sympathy is in its rise unintelligent and instinctive. The only condition requisite for it is the beholding of the feeling in a fellow man. Third, this law of feeling extends to all the emotions natural to man. We so often connect a word with the emotion of grief that we overlook its applicability to other feelings, and we forget even its etymology. In Greek philosophy, it did not mean grief only, but every exercise of feeling. So it means to share by spiritual contagion anything that we witness in our fellow man. We sympathize with merriment, joy, fear, anger, hope, benevolence, moral approbation, courage, panic, just as truly is with grief. Fourth, the nature of the emotion witness determines without any volition of our own the nature of the feeling injected into us. Sympathy with joy is a lesser joy. The glow is that of a secondary rainbow reflecting, but usually in a weaker degree, precisely the tense of the primary arc. The reader is now prepared to admit these conclusions. That sympathy may infect men with a phase of religious emotion as of any other. That the sympathetic emotions, though thus related as to their source, have no spiritual character whatever in themselves, for they are involuntary. They are unintelligent. They are passive effects on an instinctive sensibility, giving no expression to the will, and not regulating it nor regulated by it. The animal feels these sympathies as really as a man does. The reader should notice that these propositions are asserted only of the simple sensibility, the immediate reflex of strong feeling witnessed. It is not denied that the capacity of sympathy is a social trait implanted by a wise creator for practical purposes. It is the instrumental occasion of many useful results. Thus, upon the excitement of sympathy with grief follows the appetency to succor the sufferer in a benevolent volition. The first is the occasion, not the cause of the second. On our natural sympathy with the actions we witness follows our impulse to imitate. But imitation is a great lever of education, so sympathy has been called the sacred orator's right arm. Let us understand precisely what it could and cannot do in gaining lodgment for divine truth in the sinner's soul. This truth and this alone is the instrument of sanctification. To Presbyterians, a demonstration of this is superfluous, and I would also say to well-informed Reformed Baptists. It is impossible for the truth to work sanctification except as it is intelligently received into the mind. Light must reach the heart through the understanding, for the soul only feels healthily according as it sees. To the inattentive mind, the truth being unheard is as though it were not. Hence, it is of prime importance to awaken the listless attention. Whatever innocently does this is therefore a useful preliminary instrument for applying the truth. This sympathy aids to effect. The emotion of the orator arouses the slumbering attention of the sinner and temporarily wins his ear for the sacred word. Another influence of awakened sympathy may also be conceded. 
By one application of the law of association, the warmth of a feeling existing in the mind is communicated temporarily to any object coexisting with it in the mind, though that object be in itself indifferent to that soul. Stone dropped into the heated furnace is not combustible. It has no source of caloric. But by contact, it imbibes some of the heat which flames there and remains hot for a little time after it is drawn out. So the mind warmed with emotion, either original or sympathetic, is a furnace which gives some of its warmth to truth or concepts coexisting in it, otherwise cold and indifferent to it. But the warmth is merely temporary. The whole use then of a sympathetic excitement is to catch the attention and warm it. But it is the truth thus lodged in the attention that must do the whole work of sanctification. Here is the all-important discrimination. Attention, sympathetic warmth are merely a preparation for casting in the seed of the word. The preacher who satisfies himself with exciting the sympathies and neglects to throw in at once the vital truth is like the husbandman who digs and rakes the soil and then idly expects to crop, though he has put in no living seed. The only result is a more rampant growth of weeds. How often do we see this mistake committed? The preacher either displays in his own person a high-wrought religious emotion or serves the natural sensibilities by painting in exciting and pictorial words and gestures some natural feeling connected by its occasion with a religious topic as a touching death or other bereavement or he stimulates the selfish fears by painting the agonies of a lost soul, or the selfish desires and hopes by a sensuous description of the pleasures of heaven, then if sympathetic feeling is awakened, or the carnal passions of hope, fear, and desire are moved, he acts as though his work were done. He permits and encourages the hearers to flatter themselves that they are religious because they are feeling something roundabout religion. I repeat, if the stimulation of carnal and sympathetic feeling is not at once and wisely used, and used solely as a secondary means of fixing a warmed attention on didactic truth, which is the sole instrument of conversion and sanctification, then the preacher has mischievously abused the souls of his hearers. The first and most obvious mischief is the encouragement of a fatal deception and self-flattery. Unrenewed men are tacitly invited to regard themselves as either born again or at least in a most encouraging progress towards that blessing. While in fact they have not felt a single feeling or principle which may not be the mere natural product of a dead heart. This delusion is slain as tens of thousands. The reader will remember the masterly exposition by Bishop Butler of the laws of habit as affecting the sensibilities and active powers. His truth is too fully admitted to need argument. By this law of habit, the sensibilities are inevitably dulled by repeated impressions. By the same law, the appetencies and will are strengthened by voluntary exercise. Thus, if impressions on the sensibilities are followed by their legitimate exertion of the active powers, the soul as a whole, while it grows calmer and less excitable, grows stronger and more energetic in its activities and is confirmed in the paths of right action. But if the sensibilities are stimulated by objects which make no call and offer no scope for right action, 
as by fictitious and unreal pictures of human passion, the soul is uselessly hackneyed and worn and thus depraved. Here we find one of the fundamental objections to habitual novel reading, the excitement of the sympathies by warmly colored but unreal portraitures of passions, where there cannot possibly be any corresponding right action by the reader, inasmuch as the agents and sufferers are imaginary, it depraves the sensibilities without any retrieval of the soul state, and a corresponding cultivation of the active powers. The longer such reading is continued, the more does the young person become at once sentimental and unfeeling. The result is a selfish and morbid craving for excitement, coupled with a callous selfishness, dead to the claims of real charity and duty. The same objection lies against theatrical exhibitions and for the same reason. Now the species of spurious religious excitement is obnoxious to the same charge. In its practical results, it is fictitious. The merely sensational preacher is no more than a novelist or a comedian. With this circumstance that he connects topics popularly deemed religious with his fictitious arts, he abuses and hackneys the souls of his hearers in the same general way, rendering them at once sentimental and hard, selfishly fond of excitement but callous to conscience and duty. Once more, spiritual pride is as natural to man as breathing or as sin. Its only corrective is sanctifying grace. Let the suggestion be once lodged in a heart not really humbled and cleansed by grace, that the man is reconciled to God, has become good as the favorite of God and heir of glory. That soul cannot fail to be swept away by the gales of spiritual pride. Let observation teach us here. Was there ever a deceived votary of a false religion like Islam, Buddhism, or Brahmanism, or Popery, who was not in reality puffed up by spiritual pride? It cannot be otherwise with a deceived votary of a Protestant creed. The circumstance that there is divine truth in this creed, which has no vital influence on his heart, is no safeguard. The only preventative of spiritual pride is the contrition which accompanies saving repentance. Here also is the explanation of the fact that the hardy votaries of those professedly Christian creeds which have been more of Pelagianism than of gospel in them are most bigoted and most hopelessly inaccessible to truth. Their adamantine shield is spiritual pride fostered by a spurious hope and unchastened by sovereign grace. If all such self-deceivers our Savior has decided that the publicans and harlots enter into the kingdom before them. These plain facts and principles condemn nearly every feature of the modern new measure revival. End quote. Well, for the whole of that narration, go to PuritanAudiobooks.com. We want to thank you for tuning in to the Man of God Network, a podcast of Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary in Owensboro, Kentucky. 